Yo, I'm David. And I'm Colin. He's black. He's Chicano. And together, we're Brown Town. And colleagues at Soapbox Productions and Organizing, a film and social activism nonprofit specializing in multimedia storytelling for structural social change. Bourbon and Brown Town is an affiliate podcast of Soapbox that pairs critical analysis of media, culture, politics, and everyday happenings with the tastiest of spirits. With a Chicago focus, we unpack current events, social issues, and give personal insight into various topics with the occasional help of the most talented and creative activists, artists, filmmakers, academics, and social entrepreneurs. So for this episode, sit back, sip something good, and enjoy. as a fashion blogger how you think fashion influences all of this so I'm, I'm I, we were looking back at some pictures mm-hmm. in Iran and how cosmopolitan uh, some of the major cities were back before 1979 the mm-hmm. revolution yeah I think these photos being seen out of context is always um, really decontextualizing what actually was taking place in yeah. the country so the people who dressed um, in the sort of Western dress that we're seeing now are actually a very minority group of people they were upper-class people so if you wore a hijab there's actually a period of mandatory unveiling where someone could actually pull the hijab off of you. So it was an incredibly violent time and very intolerant, um, but we kind of see these images of it as nostalgia of like, oh, we want to go back to this time, but we have to understand that this isn't actually how the majority of Iranians mm. live. I'd like to welcome everyone to another installment of Urban Brown Town. It's your boy out here, 2023. David, hanging out with you. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, I'm with my boy, Colin, dude. How you doing today? I am doing decent. <laughs> I feel like you, you heard that pitch? Y'all heard that pitch? How it, went it, was, it, was, it was a <laughs> thinking <laughs> pitch. You know okay. what I'm saying? It's funny because I'll say, I'll answer, like, how are you doing like that? Folks yeah. are like, oh, are you okay? And I'm like, oh. yeah, like, actually, I am okay. That's why mm. I took some time to, like, give you an answer with that weird kind of nuanced pitch. Okay, okay. I like folks are used to hearing, like, yeah, I'm good. How are you? And it's like, nah. Uh, how, no, how, no. how am I? Tell me Let something. Let me check in. How am I? Be angry. Like, yeah. tell me something. Like, I'm fucking pissed right now. No, I'm, I'm decent. Um, been a good day. I was like sick all of last week, two weeks ago, and like was busy the week after that. And so I finally got like on somewhat of a good workout schedule. So like my body is feeling back to normal. normal-ish again. Mm-hmm. I did my own class today and I was like, fuck, that was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. y'all. Um, feel like I make y'all do this. This is your first time listening to B&B, your second time listening to the part one mm. i do fitness classes on the side so that's that's the, the the fun thing i do outside of the box of soap i.e soapbox and and bnb but david how are you doing dude i literally cannot believe we were like prepping for it that it's been so long since we recorded first of all so it's like you know and so i took into account i was like man it's we're in february like how much shit actually happened and you know sometimes people are like oh time flies by for me it's like nah like january felt long as shit <laughs> and i think it's a positive way because so many different things have happened, uh, and yeah, so we're excited to be here. We're you know in a new 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 place, new space, uh, and David, know, where are we right now? Ooh, so for folks who don't know, Bourbon and Brown Town originally started by Colin and I hanging out in our living room and sharing a drink. Uh, it is now in 2023, the same thing. We are in Colin's living room, sharing a drink. So, Colin's office. Full so, okay. leveled up. We're, we're level up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like a little opening to a, a marvelous look, redone kitchen. And, you know, there's, yeah, the office components are fire. I, I got to kudos all of your posters and stuff that you have around here, making it look solid. But, nah, but for me, it's like, you know, we're, we're grateful because we're able to, like, kind of close that, close that circle and, 
don't know. Like, uh, kind of make sure we, I don't know, make sure we're on we're on ten when we're doing this type of shit. Because we and we enjoy it, you know, and thinking about how long we've been doing it. I don't know. It's uh, it's always, it's not. We don't always have time to reflect on that type of shit. And so having so that opportunity true. sometimes makes us more grateful for the opportunities to just be able to like, yo, we've been doing this for so long and encountered so many wonderful human beings and like learned so much personally. And I I, I talk about this all the time on BNB. Uh, it's a wonderful way for just to, to start engaging with shit because this is literally just a step, right? This is you're listening to this for the first time. There's definitely work you got to do beyond listening, and you know that's something we encourage and something we talk about. So definitely appreciate the moment. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. I love yeah. that. And so you be, you being in this space, how do you feel about being in your office and like you know the, the the topic we're about to embark on? It feels nice. I think to your point, we started the podcast in 2017. It's almost been six years which seems Love wild on the six um when we lived together in wrigley um and now you know we're temporarily in my office in the south loop uh, before we get to our own office which is cool mm. but it feels very much like similar in that way it's homey i ain't got shoes on you know what i'm saying <laughs> um but also new and fresh we have like our friend here mm. uh as our guest which we'll get to in a moment who has been on the previous episode, part one, and we're doing part two, which I'm excited mm, to get into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we're, this year, we're planning a lot, finishing old projects, but also brainstorming, like, what do we want to do next type of thing? And also try to s- just thinking uh, thinking what Soulbox is going to be in this next several years. And same with B&B. And so it's, it feels very, to your point, full circle in the way that uh, we're literally in, like, a s- similar physical spaces, um, but then we're embarking on new physical spaces mm. and new relationships and old relationships, too. So it's like, both, both, both the both and of 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 life, kind yeah, of, yeah. Uh, and how we've built relationships uh, over the past several years, and so it feels really cool. Um, and on that, I think you know part of what we do is is so relationship heavy, mm. which People you know a lot, heavy, comes, yeah. a lot comes with yeah. that, and we all are very excited about the things we talk about. And so today, you know, going into the politics address part two, part this two. was like semi-plan original <laughs> conversation we just talked about so much and really got into like the nuance of of, of our upbringing and our identity and our power privilege and oppression and how that codified into how we dress and thought about ourselves um uh we didn't almost leave space for like the macro level stuff that i was really excited about mm-hmm. and leaning into our guests mm-hmm. on master's thesis and everything and so the part two kind of came out of a natural progression of like just talking about so much, having so much rich stuff. So there. much on the table still. And so yeah. I'm so glad we're able to do this again and having our guest Hannah Linsky back. Beep, 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 beep. Um, I'm so gonna it, get one of those this year, by the way. The little like we're not, we're not giving we're gonna talk about it's gonna be like a child. It's gonna be introduce our guest. It's gonna be awful. Um, so if, if you're listening to this and haven't listened to part one, I would encourage you to pause it, skirt, go back, listen to part one, then come back to this one. Um, but just so if you did or did not, I still want to let you know what Hannah's all about. Hannah, our guest for today, is a vintage stylist, seller, occasional model, and avid collector. She lives and breathes fashion and loves playing dress-up almost as much as she loves talking fashion. She's a recent graduate of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where she earned her master's in art education. Her work centers around examining historical movements through the lens of dress. Hannah, what is going on? Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> it feels like I just saw you yesterday. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like part one was like very recent. That's what I'm saying. T- you told me it was October. I was like, hell no. No, we, we recorded in October. That's wild. Fucking bad shit. But thank you so much for being with us. You know, it, it, you, you're, you're, you clearly love to talk fashion. So we're very excited that you, you know, are, we're, we're 
excited to join us again for another conversation and just to continue to dive into uh, all the things Colin talked about. I do think uh, for a check-in for all of us, I think uh, something I was thinking about is like what's some like style or, or garment or something you saw encountered in the in the world as you were growing up or just recently uh, that you kind of like really leaned towards into or kind of like you started maybe emulating or you kind of took into and kind of modified in your own way regarding like style and what we wear on a day-to-day. Is there anything particular? You know, I think of a few things, but if anyone has anything immediately. I'll start. Go ahead. <laughs> um, my, the first thing that came to my head was like my first style icon growing up um, was probably Avril Lavigne. Like, yes, love it. Early 2000s take on punk. Mm. She was wearing like the tank top with a tie. She was in like kind of preppy, but that like edgy preppy mm-hmm. kind of grungy vibe. Um, a little hole in the polo. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like young Hannah was trying to emulate that for sure, but just did not have the tools. Um, so, you know, I think that was that was the first time I remember thinking like, oh, I want to dress like that. Um, and, you know, shopping as a 10 year old, not really having the options of like dressing <laughs> like a punk in that way. But um, what's making me think of it is honestly just like as I'm thinking about my style now, I'm like, oh, I kind of see elements of like what I thought was cool then like coming through in my style now. So, yeah, that's Avril Lavigne. Early 2000s Avril Lavigne when she was like full punk ties when they didn't make sense. That's that was my first style <laughs> moment. Where then should but why did it make sense when they quote unquote make sense, Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> Who conditioned you? They make sense in certain situations. Oh, I'm so dead. I love it. I'm I'm not uh, no shade. <laughs> if you want to wear a tank top and a tie, I'm sure there are really cool ways to do it now. But You're like no column. There's literally no collar to the tie and it doesn't make sense. <laughs> like don't don't do Where does that. it go? <laughs> <laughs> it just it's just there. That's awesome. Thank you, Hannah. Colin got anything for us? I, I've been thinking, and I, I'm sure there's a better example of this, but I think just like I mentioned this last episode as well, but just like early aughts, like hip hop, like large t-shirts with the cool stuff on them. And I think like the graphic tee has been like kind of not always, but like in my you know youth to now has like always been popular in different ways. And so for me, I think early on in my adolescence, like blending like two big t-shirts multiple <laughs> shirts on at the same time with like yeah. stuff on them it was like popular and cool like it, it was a popular thing i liked it but i also started like liking movies a lot and liking like black power movements and iconography and stuff not iconography but like black power movement uh, uh imagery and stuff and so i would blend the two and have like the iron on malcolm x shirt but i like made it and it was like a big ass thing on malcolm x and like my oversized double xl t-shirt i had no business wearing yeah. so it's like it, yeah i think you for me, you could tell a lot from like where I was at, uh, in various ways of of growing by like what I was wearing. So I think just like seeing mm. dim franchise boys lean with their rock with it, and like reading Audrey Lord, I was like, huh, how do I blend these two together? <laughs> um, yeah, that's what that's what I thought of initially. At least probably probably better examples, but yeah. What about you? I don't know. I think so. My answer has definitely shifted. I think Hannah really helped me funnel it to like. Any type of individual that I kind of was always like, man, I like all their shit. And it'd probably be Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So it's not even Will Smith. It's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, that was one of the shows, like, 
that I really engaged with. I felt like we were in the same age category too. So when it was going on, I couldn't relate to a lot of the spe- aspects, but I loved the comedy and the 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 just the 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 heart in which the character of Will Smith kind of like lives and breathes and goes through it all. So like we've you know we've seen it this the whole thing a few times. So I, I was like him, but then I'm really thinking about like if that really translated, and I don't think it did so much in the my the physical aspect as much as like you know bless the fall which is a group of emo kids you know from iowa you know with the long hair all black you know the long sleeves you know just dicky shorts you know i kind of see dickies let's go so you know like you know convert you know like it kind of leaned into to that so that's what was most manifested and it was truly an act of rebellion for against my parents right it's like it's like oh like we go buy me shirts like dress shirts for my sunday i was like i could wear black <laughs> <laughs> like uh, all black with a like red, red tie. tie. Let's yeah, go. I was just joking. That was literally my high school photo. Do you have a Vans on? Uh, I don't remember, but I probably had Converse. Did it look like sneakers? No, I was a huge Converse person. I am curious because Hannah, we're friends. We talk on Instagram all the time, and I, <laughs> I, I love like interacting with your posts and like seeing things you, you put out in the world, especially those stuff that I'm not as familiar with. Um, but I remember, I don't know when this was, I think between our recordings, but you put out something asking followers like, Hey, when did you discover your, your, like your st- personal style? How are you thinking through that? Mm. And we've answered that question here and listeners kind of know, know us. And we're, I don't say we're unique individuals, but like, I don't know, we're very particular types of people, Dave and I, at least. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, we're, we're, first of all, like clarify anything I'm saying that's maybe not correct, but also I'm curious, like what's your followers fed back to you as far as like what they said about their their personal style and stuff i want to kind of talk about that a little bit before we move on to like the macro type shit yeah um i think it was like beginning of january i asked my followers some questions about do you feel like you have a personal style could you describe it you know if you had to describe it in three words what would those be um and then if you feel like you don't have personal style you know why or why not um what's holding you back, you know, what makes it kind of hard to develop personal style for you. Um, And I've just been really, like, fascinated by those questions lately um, because I feel like only recently did I develop a personal style, like, within, honestly, like, the last six months maybe to a year. Um, And I think something that I it's helped me do is really, like, curb my consumption of clothing. Um, And so I'm just really interested in, in sort of how other I feel like developing a personal style can be sort of a way to act more sustainably and responsibly when it comes to clothing and fashion um, and really like cur- yeah, curb cons- consumption and make us feel more confident investing in like more quality items um, and sort of not just following trends in a way that can lead to, um, you know, disposal of garments lead to us buying things we don't need, that kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, I was just really fascinated by the response. Um, I think if you would have asked me like two years ago, if I had a personal style, I would have said yes. But now looking back on that, I would have said no at that time in my life. I didn't. Um, so I think it can be really easy to kind of equate like, oh, people say I'm fashionable or people say my outfits are cute with I have personal style. And to me, those two things are very different. Um, personal style for me really has nothing to do with following trends or being described as fashionable as much as it does like being in tune with sort of our own sense of self and how we communicate that to the world. 
Um, and so I think seeing people's responses and seeing who thought they did and didn't um, and then why I think was really important because there's a lot of very legitimate reasons about why I think we're fed so many trends that, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't know if this is something I genuinely like or something that I'm just hearing I should like in media, in fashion spaces, you know, it's being served to me on all these websites that sell clothing. So I'm just assuming I like it cause I'm seeing like attractive people wear it. Um, was, was there, was there any particular response that uh maybe surprised you from like what you put out um i honestly not really i think a lot of it was stuff that like i felt like i've either had conversations with other people or felt myself it was a lot of kind of do i like it or is it just trendy it was a lot of you know maybe i don't see my body type or my identity in popular fashion and so i have trouble like deciphering what i like on myself you know, a lot of kind of wading through, you know, self-confidence and self-love and then also financially, um, you know, feeling like developing personal style is hard if you don't have the money to do so. Um, or don't know how. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot about developing tools also. And a lot of it's like inward reflection that has nothing to do with fashion, but more about just like knowing yourself well enough. And then like, how do I communicate? who I am in what I'm wearing. And some people just honestly don't care. And that's also fine. Um, but there's a reason they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that reason yeah. is? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I, for myself, there, there was definitely a moment in time where I was like, I did not care what was on me. I was like, you know, for them. And maybe, maybe what, 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 what ended up happening here is like, let's also think about in this period in time, I was given like I had a uniform, a work uniform, right? It's very particular type of work uniform, like tie and shit, vests and shit, dress shoes and shit. And so I would alternate between that and then like just wanting to be comfortable. And so to a degree it's like, I didn't care, but, but I was just like, I'm going to go into work in three hours. So I'm going to like dress up in my dress shirt. And then, you know, then I would go out. If I would go out, I would be dressed up like that already. So there was a period in time. I'm thinking of like folks who, who were giving you some responses. That's why I was just curious if like, there's anything like, not that shocked us, but it's, 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 you know, it's not surprising that there was a, there the connections between all of these responses from things that we, you know, because we all experience, right? Like being uncomfortable, not seeing ourselves a representative. Like, how do I know if this looks I, like I, like I feel like that definitely probably resonates with a lot of our listeners as well. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's really fun to wade through those things. I think it's fun. I mean, this is what I love to do, so of course I think it's fun. But um, for me, it was fun to like reflect on my own closet and be like, okay, I'm wearing these three outfits like every week, and what do I like about those? Like, how do I? How do I like, you know, reduce the clutter in a responsible way? But then how do I replicate like the feeling that I feel when I wear these three things that I always reach for in my wardrobe? What I'm getting from that, which I think is fascinating, and I won't go on this tangent because I think it relates to a lot of things. But the response you gave, response you received rather, when folks were understanding themselves and intentional about their choices or lack of choice, it made their practices like more responsible and or it's like sustainable right in, in a way um and so like if you know what you like to wear and you have like what you're seeking out you can make you can okay I, i'm not just casually because i think like i think when we're 
casually consuming or casually doing anything, that's when like we kind of seep into practices maybe we don't agree with or aren't, aren't ethical or like don't align with our values because they're just easy, right? And when you're like thinking about it and it's intentional, like even if it's like a, I think anti choice is a choice, but like you know people don't care if they know they don't care, then like it's they can still make moves in ways that are aligned with their values. Mm. I think that goes through a lot of different things in life. But the way that happens with, like, fashion is, like, it's fascinating to me. I was not mm. thinking about that prior to. I think I've kind of moved that same way. I was going to wear a hoodie to this uh, Brand Johnson's guy run for mayor. Went to his, like, meet and greet thing several weeks ago. Uh, shout out, Brandon, Brandon for mayor. Shout out. Um, <laughs> that's not a soapbox of B&B thing. That's just Colin, just to be clear. And David. IRS, oh, yeah. who's listening <laughs> to this. Um, anyway, so I was going to go to this, this thing, uh, and I was like, just casual, whatever. I was going to put a hoodie on, like, a jean jacket, just, like, my go-to which I mentioned in the last episode, but I was like, oh, let me get the No Cop Academy hoodie on just to see <laughs> if he says something. And he kind of had a nod. I'm like, all right, bet. So you're, you're about it. So, but if I didn't wear that hoodie, and I was like asking the direct question, which I kind of did, how would I know how he felt about the Cop Academy? You know what I mean? So like, it, those little things are all intentional and they, 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 they make moves. So um, thought about that, but to kind of segue us, uh, one, I would love for you to just give give the audience another spiel on what revolutionary dress is. Mm. And I mentioned it last time. But I think we'll kind of dive in that a little more this time. Um, and I think one, I think it's super dope, and I'm trying, I'm, I'm down to get into like the, the nitty gritty of different movements and stuff you, you dissect and you've been thinking about since then. But also, it's like intentional dress is part of that that whole thing, right? Um, so I want to say any more. Uh, Hannah, could you tell us what revolutionary dress is and what you've been thinking about lately as far as that? Because that was a little bit ago, right? But it's part of um, what you do and think about and movements are always happening and changing. So I'm just curious where your mind's been with all that. Revolutionary dress was sort of was born out of my master's thesis in art education, um, specifically kind of molding my you know, interest and involvement in politics, in social movements, but also my love of fashion. Um, And sort of throughout my art education master's, I was simultaneously taking fashion history courses and these, you know, education courses, but more than that, sort of like psychology, but also movement focused, um, very political minded. And to me, these like these two sort of facets of the school that I was involved with meshed perfectly, but there really wasn't Mm. any overlap in those departments except me. So I'm, (laughs) I was bringing those conversations from each class, like into other spaces. Um, And I was met with a lot of blank stares, not because people like disagreed with me, although maybe some did, but um, I think more just because people hadn't thought about it. Um, And so that kind of like led me into this rabbit hole of why haven't people thought about this? Why aren't we talking about what we wear to young people? Why aren't we like addressing that more now as adults? Because it influences so much of how we perceive each other, how we perceive the world, how we show up in spaces. Um, Why isn't that conversation happening more? So I think revolutionary dress was sort of um, both a look at history and sort of an answer to the holes I felt in fashion history curriculum specifically, but also then like pivoting it to people who aren't in fashion history spaces because the conversation of dress is still important in those spaces also. Um, And I think it's easy to write off conversations about dress as trivial, um, Mm. especially when we're talking about politics um, or revolutionary movements or anything like that. Um, I can see how people would think that what 
like historically what people were wearing is not the most important part of that conversation <laughs> and like sure i agree with you yeah. it's not the most important part for sure right. um <laughs> but i do think it's still worth talking about Fuck because mm-hmm. um fashion and dress you know deserves its place kind of next to revolutionary writers or poets mm. or artists or songwriters or filmmakers um i think fashion and dress can be a cultural artifact in that same vein um but it often isn't approached that way or spoken about that way um and i could talk about why that probably is rooted in who is most interested in fashion um which tends to be those who are most marginalized women queer people people of color tend to be kind of the arbiters of fashion um and so it gets written off as unimportant but i think what we wear reflects sort of our our own material conditions our beliefs our desires um and there's a lot of ways that like the state those in power have controlled what we wear have used what we wear as sort of cultural hegemony to influence our beliefs about each other to divide us visually um and then also alternatively it's been a really powerful method of resistance throughout history which we can talk more about so to the skeptics out there who maybe don't even <laughs> listen to this episode because they're like, that doesn't matter. You're like, clothed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it really does. I think it influences a lot of how we perceive each other. It's kind of mm. one of the first things we look at when we're... You notice. Make, you yeah, to, when yeah. we're, when yeah. we're <laughs> getting a first impression of someone. Um, and all of that, all of those like first impression kind of stereotypes or judgments we make about people based on what they wear. Like none of that is natural or instinctual. Like that's all been manufactured. Um, so like we should unpack how that's been manufactured. We should be, we should have those sort of second thoughts after that first initial judgment is made. Like, Oh wait, why am I thinking that? Um, what elements of like state control have made me think that because, you know, down to gender, down to class, all of that has been manufactured in like actually really crazy ways um none of it is just you know a byproduct of being a human being so it's not natural y'all right you're natural in any sense just like think about if it isn't natural is is it natural um let our haters be our motivators Mm -hmm. i I would say uh speaking of that i I went to a christmas party (laughs) wonderful time (laughs) i went to christmas party um in december 2022 and this person was not there when I got there, but I was told at, after the fact that there was a dude there who was apparently a cop. Um, if you listen to BNB, we're not fans of, of the police. Mm. Um, this person had a sweatshirt that said Police Navidad. And I had a picture of like a bank robbers and like guns or something on it. And I was like, why? I just, there's so many things I dislike was he, about was, this. Was, was, did he, was he Hispanic? Uh, I do not believe so. I don't know for sure, yeah, but contextually, I want to say no. Uh, I so can, even, can see, well, you know. yeah, we can. I mean, that, that's the episode. But um, anyway, you got to take care of that human. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we Wilson can take care of that human. Um, a lot of election jokes this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> municipal elections are a couple of weeks in Chicago for our out of out of Chicago or untapped Chicago listeners. Um, thank you for giving us all that, Hannah. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to, to dive in. Um, you mentioned, I mean, I think arguably all re- revolutionary struggles and movements across the globe and across history are in some kind of contention with the state, right? But um, if, if we're thinking well, like recently-ish, um, 
especially with marginalized groups you mentioned, does anything come to mind as far as more recent movements of folks using dress in certain ways that are combating uh, any kind of state violence or oppression or what have you? Yeah, Iran is a great example um, for those who are not following along. We are talking about um, this started... Um, gained a lot of media attention sort of at the end of last year. We're talking about Masa Amini, um, the hijab protest movement in Iran um, that sort of began with sort of the um, forced wearing of the hijab um, for women in Iran um, and sort of blew up into the hijab sort of symbolizing both women's oppression and liberation, but also sort of um, human rights as a whole in Iran. Um, sort of against state oppression. Um, I'm not like the expert on that topic, obviously, but I do think it's a great example of sort of how an article of dress can um, go on to symbolize larger issues, right? This isn't just a protest about dress codes. Um, it has gone on to symbolize both women's liberation, but also just sort of state oppression in Iran as a whole um, and has, you know, garnered mass movement throughout Iran and, and, and protests and organizing. And um, yeah, did you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I haven't reflected or seen as much lately. I mean, I've probably seen as much because it's out of like the media, right, moment, right? There's still things happening, I mean, everywhere all the time, but especially in Iran. Seeing Western corporate media cover anything is always kind of like, Ugh. Um, but seeing them cover it and seeing... Folks like we know, we're know of, like Hoda Katebi would talk a lot about what was happening over there. Definitely um, follow her if you're interested in, in this topic or any fashion Or topic. just anything yeah, dope. Just any political thing or fashion thing, abolitionist. Her. Find her on the episode <laughs> notes. <laughs> yeah, abolition, dope abolitionist, uh, fashion organizer, writer, uh, like soon-to-be lawyer. She's in law school now, whatever. Um, so shout out. And yeah, seeing lots of the she was putting out too, kind of telling folks about what's happening. But also critiquing Western media, which she, you know, she's been interviewed a bunch of times, and she's interviewed before, and they were like asking her about Iran's, Iran's nuclear weapons, and she's like, "I'm a fashion blocker. Like, I have answered your question, but like, you don't ask like white chefs about fucking, you know, NATO. You know what we're right. talking about? Anyway, um, we'll, we'll, link that, we'll link that to you know what we're talking about. However, um, uh, following her and seeing other just Western media talk about it was interesting because, you know. We, we, Wesley Reader likes to like point at these examples like, oh, they're women are rising up and good for them, and like, poor, they boot, like, poo poo Iran. It's like, y'all got your own issues <laughs> suppressing women's rights in a lot of ways. So, mm -hmm. like, what's happening in your backyard? What are we doing here? And that, that's that, across the board, but that was an interesting moment seeing that. And I think we're in this interesting media moment where uh, folks, folks like Oda and other folks would be on interviews and stuff kind of saying that speaking truth to power in real ways so like corporate news journalists being like hey y'all like y'all need to get your own get your own house together before you start looking at ours uh but one thing just being a cis that dude not muslim not living in the middle east um and just you know reading and knowing knowing folks who have fam out there and organize out there and do different things being away from it hearing a lot about you know folks who choose where they job and folks who don't uh but this being about like choice and not being a woman, right? Don't don't have that experience, but like a lot of what we see, what we see with like kind of this more currently like feminism, right? Is about you know folks can choose to 
have children and like cover up in the, as far as how they dress and, and what have you. And other folks could just not have children and not get married or and be poly, be monogamous or like, it, all these things that, you know, so many decades ago would be seen as like not okay, whatever fashion. Uh, it's about choice and it's about not, these things not being normalized for anyone, especially for women that has been like such a uh, normalized thing you have to do. And then there's going to be like consequences outside of that that are oppressive and violent and what have you. Again, someone from the outside, 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 <laughs> looking in, trying to be respectful and understand all the nuances there and stuff as well, um, was kind of big for, for Colin looking at that and seeing different messages from various people, media outlets about it. Um, and a lot of this boils down to choice, whether we talk about fashion or how we dress or what have you. And certain stakes are a lot higher in certain environments and, 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 and not for certain environments and or um, certain identities and what have you. So that's what I got a lot from it. Um, thank you for the kind of the overview and we'll give more details and much more like information in the episode notes. And hopefully you, you who know more. Yeah, who know more. <laughs> don't 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 take a word for it. But that just for us talking about it right here and in the context of everything else, like that meant something. And that um and folks are risking a a, a lot uh just by what they're wearing. And that may come to shock to some folks, but others like that's the risk very much a reality. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, simultaneously while <coughs> the, this is happening, sort of compulsory hijab wearing is happening in Iran, you know, in France, there's the direct opposite happening. <sighs> there's, you know, a push for secularism to the point where people can't express religious beliefs by wearing a hijab. So um, France is, you know, saying women can't wear hijabs in a lot of public spaces. And, you know. So we, we, we see both, like, kind of both extremes, and Colin, you're right. The answer is choice, you know. The answer is choice either way, um, freedom of choice either way. But, yeah, I think it's it's interesting that we see both both extremes happening in the current climate, and, you know, neither neither is right in this situation. Hmm. Is there any what, – uh, what was something that came to your mind outside of the Iran example when we asked the question of, like, has there been anything in fashion that has currently been used um, or that you've seen or noticed as of late? I'm, I'm really fascinated by the conversations about um, sort of what is masculine to wear um, and, you know, conversations surrounding, um, you know, men choosing to wear skirts or dresses or non-binary people who present more masculine choosing to wear skirts or dresses um, or heels or sort of anything that gets coded as feminine um, being styled or worn um, by men or non-binary people and just sort of, yeah, these conversations about, like, you know, bring back manly men. Um, and as, a, as someone who is, like, very interested in history, um, that idea is very laughable to me because there are so many examples throughout um, even just Western history, like we don't even need to, you know, culturally still mm -hmm, today, mm -hmm. you know, if we're looking globally, there are so many cultures um, where men are right now, you know, wearing skirts and dresses because they're very practical, especially in hot climates. My balls is hot. Yeah. Uh, I need this skirt right quick. They're great for ventilation. Um, and so, you know, if, even if we're just looking at Western society, if you go back just a couple hundred years, um, you know, the most masculine thing you could do was have on high heels and makeup and wigs. And, 
men would bring those to battlefields with them. You know, it was important for like men fighting in wars to still have makeup on and still wear wigs. So um, I just that that idea of of bring back manly men and sort of that conversation about what is masculinity, what is what is a masculine thing to wear. Um, I've just been I, I've been sort of enjoying hearing those arguments as someone who understands the history better because I, it strikes me as a little funny, but ultimately it's um, there's a lot of seriousness to it too because our our Western idea of masculinity is so fragile that there's you know a lot of, of trauma and violence justified against individuals who don't meet those standards or who choose to exist and express themselves outside of those standards. Um, and there's just not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of justification or backing for it the way that these, you know, individuals perpetrating violence believe that there is. Um, so yeah, that was something that came to mind for me was sort of this idea of, of gender expression and just how even in recent history, our idea of, you know, what is gendered clothing has shifted dramatically. So why, why do we feel so stuck in the binary that we exist in now? We're all in a bubble in some capacity, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like with that conversation too, like I know it, it is happening. Uh, and I'll see stuff from like Fox News or like some like really right-wing meme or something. I'm like, oh, people are like laughing at this. And this is ho- like horrible and like wrong, but also like, adds to violence and like the belief system that uh uplifts uh, uh, these binaries and 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 these these myths of of what people are mm-hmm. in a really literal way is like kind of scary um but i forget sometimes the tools and the platforms that we engage in social media and like memes and all that like i see certain certain things i talk to certain people and i have like a a, a broad array of like friends acquaintances right but like you know, I'm not seeing like Nazi memes or like or like mm. super like not only even alt right or anything like that, but just like these very like oh how can men men be men and that kind of I'm not, I'm not seeing that as far like seriously from people that I know and stuff. So like sometimes hearing hearing just hearing that from you and just seeing little things I hear see here and there or like you know random Twitter trolls that just tangent Twitter trolls shout out like get, we, like we, we love y'all. Please, I, I love y'all, but like, Keep like, it. get some, you know, get some courage. It's always like John eight four seven two D. It's like all these numbers. You never have an avatar. There's never any bio. If you're gonna like talk shit, like talk shit with your full chest. I'm just saying. Anyway, <laughs> see, random Twitter trolls say stuff that's like kind of shitty. And you're like, huh? Like, oh, people, th- people actually think that. And so sometimes it's like it's it's a rude awakening, but it's like something I need to see or hear and engage, not engage in, but just like understand because. That's the world we live in, right? And even by I don't even my role in all this is not to cater to those folks who like engage with them. Some folks it is, maybe if that if that's not mine. Just knowing they exist, I, it's it's a good reminder that we still have so much work to do in a certain way. In comparison to Colin, I engage with that type of uh, mentality more often than I would like. In mm. regards of like, truly, what I feel is a lot of uh, men who feel this way is one in a level of insecurity that they themselves will not acknowledge right as like nah dude like like ah my definition of manlyhood is boxed into this thing so anything outside of it doesn't fucking work uh and it's you know these are also the same type of individuals who oftentimes lack uh the willingness or the 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 want to stretch outside of that box because they're comfortable in it and it's like they know okay i'm a man in this box 
<laughs> if I if I stick to these norms and regulations that I made for myself or that truly the system created for me and then I took these things thinking that I'm individual or whatever and I like kind of boxed it in and thinking like okay and I, and so it's a it's a frailty that I see often and I think it's very difficult to talk to that type of dude because it's like dude like what are you what are you scared about that's that's the, oftentimes where like if I've gone to that route it's like I ask like what what are you scared about like. Like, are you scared you're gonna be gay? Like, is that is that a thing? Like, you didn't get to catch gay? Like, I'm just I'm just like, talk to me, fam. And so, I don't know. That's just I think there's definitely a lot there, but uh, you know, it's good to hear that on the other end, um, there are different types of challenges. And I, you know, I would argue, you know, I think it, it, at the end of the day, it's like definitely an individual thing. You know, I don't know if I said last time about my glasses. I got them from the women's section. Did I say that last time? <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm just teasing. But you know what I'm saying? It's like it's not because like they're women glasses. Like what the fuck? The glasses, women glasses. That is what does it mean? And these are cute, and I wanted them. I was like, fuck, let's get them. You know what I'm saying? So I think I don't know. I think it, there's there's a lot of questions that uh, uh, we as individuals have to ask ourselves, as you mentioned early on. But I do think you know, to, to, to those brothers, to those people, you know, to them fellas, like, you know, just kind of chill out. Because I think sometimes it's malicious, right? Sometimes it's sort of this enforcement of the binary or, you know, whatever um, sort of oppressive structure you, you want to choose. But I think sometimes it is gen- genuinely kind of what you're saying, David, of like more of an insecurity or something people haven't delved into themselves because they can't they're not allowed to right you go to church they haven't been given the tools or yeah they're told they shouldn't um or you know they've been given this one they'll be shunned by their family like you know crazy shit um but i i I was watching this tiktok of this of this guy who does historical like costuming and dressing and he's a you know a custom tailor and so he dresses in like kind of 1800s 1700s men's fashion which is like which he makes himself yeah he makes himself and it's so cool um i can't do it (laughs) right like (laughs) Like, it's a very it's a very niche skill yeah um and people probably like it like you probably have to follow i love watching it it's fascinating (laughs) um but it's you know like he's wearing like colorful silk ties and like ruffled shirts and heeled shoes and there was this one commenter who was like you know genuinely not in a malicious way being like like weren't men at this time scared of appearing gay and I just thought that was, like, such a fascinating noses. question. <laughs> because to me, I'm like, no, like, what you don't understand is that this is the height of masculinity at this time. Like, what this man is wearing is so the most masculine thing you could have done in the 1800s was powder your face or, like, wear a wig or have on this, like, floral silk top. Um, so I just think, you know, some of it is that genuine, like, wait, you know, we haven't always had the masculine ideals that we have now. Like, even within our own society just you know a few generations ago they were vastly different um so yeah i think part of it too is just no one has has given a lot of people the tools to discern like wait these these uh, these masculine or feminine or you know whatever ideals that we hold very tightly now are like very temporary and always evolving everything has a history to it uh and we see things be cyclical cyclical we see things um be very different um, and we see like new new age stuff that is that actually is. I don't know. I just I like I think what I preach about the work you do and just like uh, some of the stuff that we try to get across at soapbox in general. As far as like either this shit is super super new. What the fuck are we doing? Like carceral systems, war, policing, whatever. We talk about a lot. Um, like this Maybe is not war, but yeah. 
True. W- war and, and, and like the, the type of you know yeah, post yeah, yeah, yeah. post World War II <laughs> capitalism. I hear you. Eisenhower warned <laughs> us the you know pro, yeah the yeah, yeah. yeah, whatever. Yeah, so, um, listen, so y'all don't get confused. I hear you. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. neoliberalism post World War II. <laughs> we should hope us on neoliberalism. I feel like I mentioned a lot. Either way, yeah, things that are new that we, that we think are impermanent. And I was, I've always been here. Then things that like there's a long history and it has not always been this way, or it like has in very different iterations. So, I, I think. Part of your work as far as just like what masculinity looks like, but also other iterations going back to like movement, how things look and how things have been um, is super important. And I think I think you mentioned this the previous episode about certain things like we like wear or think about now, like faded denim jackets or like leather jackets or I've seen like turtlenecks kind of come back in, in vogue, right? For various reasons, like that stuff has a history to it. And so that history is in movement and like means something, right? Um, do, do you mind speaking to, I, I give a couple examples, but anything that comes top of mind as far as like certain things that maybe are in vogue now or haven't been the past 10 years or so that have uh, uh, movement history to them, whether in this country or, or abroad. Yeah, definitely. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is um, denim is very common now. You know, at every you know, probably everyone owns a pair of jeans um, or you know some sort of denim item, and it, they can be very fashionable. It's kind of a very classic piece. There's a lot of ways to wear denim, um, but if you go back, you know, just even to like our grandparents' generation, right? We're not going back that far in history, just to 1950s, 60s. Um, Denim was still kind of um, both only like a masculine item of clothing and considered and perceived as a very low class, you know, poverty, poor level type of clothing. Um, And so one of the ways that showed up in movement spaces was um, during the civil rights movement, the um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC was a group of youth um, who kind of in contrast to what we know um, the movement to be as sort of Martin Luther King and and his cohort wearing their Sunday best and dressing very formally to nonviolent peaceful protests um, and movement spaces sort of um, which has its own you know context and 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 reasoning and symbolism behind it um, but sort of in contrast to that this group of young people um, college age, and even younger, um, sort of took the opposite approach um, and, and started showing up to these same kind of movements, um, demanding the same things, but dressing in a way to symbolize something very different, which was, you know, if you show up to um, one of these actions wearing overalls and a white t-shirt, um, you are aligning yourself not with sort of this middle class, um, mm, respectable, like yeah. yeah, like quote unquote respectable aesthetic, <clears throat> but you're aligning yourself with black sharecroppers at the time um and the idea behind that was you know sort of until these black sharecroppers receive the same rights that the wealthy white people have you know we're not going to see equality in the united states where we don't want equality only if it comes at the cost of having to sort of perform this middle class white aesthetic um we want it you know as um even for these people who are experiencing you know the worst levels of poverty because of the systems in place in the United States. So um, denim was like a very radical thing at that point. It was, um, you know, 
men and women at these protests showing up in denim overalls and jeans and white t-shirts. It was black women wearing their hair in natural styles and not relaxed um, in any sort of way. So there was just a lot of symbolism in denim that now we wouldn't think of if someone wore jeans to a protest. It, It wouldn't really be thought twice about, but at the time wearing denim was very symbolic of sort of um, you know, until we can bring up all of, like, until we can bring up the, the lowest of the low as far as, like, who is treated the worst in our society, we will not see equality. We will not see the kind of world we want to see. Yeah, I think that's wild. It's, it's so crazy. I was going to ask you, like, why denim, but then I connected immediately with the Raboso in Mexico, and I think it kind of holds that same power. Because um, originally, you know, it's a rebel, so it's only be a, a female garment, right? And it was mainly used just to, to cover. And so then 1910 hits, you know, Mexican Revolution goes on. Women start jumping into the shits, and so that rebel then became, you know, just this, this accessory to part of their military wardrobe. And then even then defining, like, women in battle, right? Because we're thinking 1910, you know, all militaries were sexist. Okay, it just wasn't, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I think seeing how an item like a reboso, which is, in English, like a scarf almost, like a, like a thin Lee Vale type of scarf that then can be used for different things. Um, I don't know. That's just something that I connected with immediately when thinking of, like, how these items are originally seen. And then now, like, you know, I think Frida Kahlo kind of made it more popular in, in the in, in, through the world, right? Um, and it became uh, more of a symbol that I think, I don't know if it's lost its meaning in the way in which women in the 1910 who were in the military, you know, you know fighting for their fighting beside their people um, wore it, but I, I don't know, that's something that I connect to it. And just thinking of, you know, other examples of fashion and how it is embedded in in revolution. You know, that was like a literal revolution, but you know, I think there are different types of fights going on all the time, so. Yeah, definitely, that's mm-hmm. an example. I feel like something that I've experienced researching this was like, the things that it was easiest for me to like seek out and learn more about were things that I had kind of like a foundational knowledge of from my own upbringing, which was obviously very like Western world centric and, and whitewashed in a lot of ways. So I'd love to like know more about the example that you're talking about because it's, it's like, I don't even, I don't even know how to look that up because no one has ever, no, and, I was and never prompted with that history and it's cr- before. And it's so nuts, That's though, because, awesome. like, even for me, it's like, so once again, we, B&B, these are opportunities for us to c- continue learning. And so it's like, it, it, it's always interesting to, like, sit back to Colin's point, like, everything has history in it. But it's like, where, where does it come from? You know, I knew my grandmother always carried her bolso everywhere she went. She'd be like, mi rebozo, and this, like, you know, we were walking out. She wants her fucking scarf. All right, cool. And it's like, it's Mexico. It's not, it's not cold. You don't need this shit. But it's, you know, it becomes this sort of, con- the, the, uh, it, there is a connection to this item. And so from my understanding and the research that we've done, we, we, we can offer some some of the links on the episode notes. But it's, it's, it's truly, it's this item that was oftentimes worn, you know, women wore it. And in 1910, creating that setting, that system where women then have to fall into it, they would still wear the reboso, but then it would become this sort of, uh, there would be different uses for it rather than it just being this feminist icon. And, and so from, from my understanding of it, it then became to symbolize feminism, right, in, in, in a very unique light uh, in a time where that wasn't that wasn't the norm, right, where, where most women at the time, to, to my understanding, like had to kind of even fake their way. <laughs> they had to pretend to be men to, in order to fight type shit. Mm. Um, and so, you know, to, to my understanding, it, you know, the, the Rebosa is one of those items 
that in, in, in Mexican tradition kind of uh, has continued to carry a weight of its own, you know, because um, like my aunt, my aunt doesn't have, you know, my grandma was probably that generation of, to, to your point, and we don't got to go that far, that the Roboso was a thing. Like, no, my mom doesn't carry a Roboso. No, <laughs> so, uh, but I don't know. It just, you know, I'm curious, like, does that history die there or does it continue? Yeah. That, but I think that that leads us to another another conversation for sure. No, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I need to read more about that. Google's fantastic, bro. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and, and I, I don't know. It's, I think it's so beautiful to look at, you know, um, to your point, right, I think. Uh, sometimes, and even Collins, right, you're, you're mentioning this bubble, right? And I think with something like fashion, it's very easy to get into these bubbles, right? Very easy to just be used to seeing one type of thing. And if, if something breaks outside the norm, you either question it or you you you, you don't like it. You disregard it and you, you fight against it type shit because, you know, there's more options than those two. But um, I'm just curious if anyone else has any other thoughts in regards to other examples that we've seen um, regarding, uh, you know, clothing and or... or, or, or you know, uh, fashion, right? Because it, it's interesting because these last few episodes, I've definitely been learning more and more that like fashion is more than just like the jacket and the shoes that I put on. You know what I'm saying? Definitely. And, you know, you started the episode with being like, you learned that you had, like what your fashion is versus what people told you looked cute. And that kind of hit. Because it's like, you know, I don't know. That's another conversation. But I'm trying to <laughs> trying to center us in, 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 in any other ideas or any other things that we would like to touch on before moving forward um, in terms of how we've seen any type of fashion. I'm curious, Hannah, like what David shared was kind of new to you. And like, you know, there's certain things that I know you've explored the revolutionary dress and I've Hmm. seen or known or experienced. um, But I kind of want to go back to like when in building revolutionary dress, um, what was, what came up that was new to you? Um, what like either long ago or international struggles or international times of of of, of strife or revolution or what have you, uh, kind of that was new or interesting to you that you maybe didn't know beforehand. Maybe you knew a little bit of, but you learned more about. Yeah. Um. So just for a little background for people who haven't heard me speak before, um, part of revolutionary dress, um, it started with me sort of writing this long overview paper where I was like, let me just find every example of let me graduate (laughs) (laughs) that, but also like, let me just find every example I can find and like learn about that, you know, is where historical revolutionary movements like incorporated dress into their sort of toolkit. Um, Mm. And so, you know, the first paper I wrote was, long as hell and it was just like you know 15 examples of like fashion matters in politics and here's why and it was like a paragraph about each example um and I was definitely limited by like okay you know I most of my knowledge base is American history with like a little European history because that's our education system so I know those examples the best um but like what do I what do I search to find examples from South America what examples do I search to like find you know examples of like asian dress and politics and you don't know what you don't know right like i don't even know where to start um so that was very limiting and that's why i'm like so grateful to hear like as i've shared this project with other people um you know people of other cultures have been like wait in in my culture there's this example and i'm like oh yes thank you i can like add it to my list and add it to the map and all these cool things so 
um, that's been the thing I've been most grateful for is just like expanding my sort of worldview of examples of this because I'm certain they're happening all over. I'm certain they're happening like older than I can find, you know, historical record of. Um, but yeah, it's just a matter of, of knowing what to search sometimes. And, you know, the answer is I, I don't always know what to search to find those things. Um, so what I ended up focusing on sort of the, the examples that I thought the most people I kind of I didn't want to have to give entire history lessons on certain moments what are what are Here's things that I thought the majority of people I would be speaking to this about would like have some sort of foundational mm-hmm. knowledge in mm-hmm. um so the the civil rights movement has some great symbolism in dress um yeah. and then it ties into the black panther movement which has very iconic uniform um and then I did the punk movement as well because I thought that was you know less sort of history class and more kind of like art and music and mm. you're the that. Brits they're there you know right see you. Uh, hey. and so that was the other example I focused on because I think no. culturally <laughs> we all have touch points I for that <laughs> 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 I, I tried to see if I could get it in there they would have said stuff like test me to see if I'm going to check him on or not like, that didn't happen what are you talking about no but I love it uh, but yeah those are the three examples I focused on just you know because as I was like oh man, like the history of Indian independence, like of India's independence from England has some great examples of dress, but also like I have to backtrack a ton and like learn about learn what happened and then and, like, why that's important. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm nowhere qualified to teach, you know, about that subject because I'm also just learning about it. So um, yeah, I chose those three examples to kind of focus on. But yeah, I think the thing I've been most grateful for is people's response to my work is, did you know about this one? I'm like, no, I didn't. That's tell awesome. Me more, yeah, please, please yes. tell me more. It's, it's participatory. And like, in, in, in a way, at least yeah. like, at least giving you some an entry into like looking more into it. And I think like, I said this a million times in this podcast, but like, went back to school, we got a master's in sociology. On this podcast, we have folks like you on here who like knows more about this shit, but like we can like bring up examples, kind of talk macro about certain things and kind of understand it on a broad level. And I feel like that's why I like appreciate and glean glean a lot from theory but also just systems and just like revolutionary strategy and organizing strategy because it's applicable to a lot of different struggles and or theory to a lot of different systems of oppression globally and throughout history it's like they're not always that much different right um but you know i do believe like theory without practical application is kind of useless so it's like including those two together is helpful i feel like you you know how it works and you certain concrete examples um from education you've already had and dug into in like this country and whatever but also like hearing folks talk about certain their other histories or, or countries or struggles globally what have you um you do the research you understand like what happened and like okay they did this i can connect the dots easier because i know like how this works on a macro level type of thing so which i really appreciate and one thing that i kind of glean from looking at some of the some of the Examples you mentioned, i.e., we're looking at 1700 Scottish Resistance, French Revolution, 1790s, Indian Independence, 1900s, Women's Suffrage, 1910s, Flappers, 1920s, Algerian Independence, 1930s. A lot of examples. It goes on and on and on. Plenty of examples and plenty of things we're not naming. Going from civil rights movement and, as you mentioned, like respectability being a big thing and like just a big point of contention, like topic and, and thing in black american culture especially and we look at long ago as far as how more important it was then than it is now as far as like just to survive um 
we see that not only in like looking at literature from decades ago, centuries ago to now, but also just in our movements. Like civil rights movement, we think of MLK and SNCC and, and then um, folks that showing like sharecroppers and, and folks and then going to black power movement, reclaiming black as beautiful, wearing all black, wearing the black berets and the black panthers, those berets being a nod to the French Revolution and how we're like sharing our histories and borrowing from our histories, which is super cool. Um, and then going to BLM from you know Trayvon to now, but especially the uprising of 2020 to now, um, respectability being like out the window, right? Yeah. And really leaning into the fact Formal that like, no, I'm going to be my full yeah. self mm-hmm. uh, in all of my blackness and all of my queerness and all of my uh, femininity and, and, and whatever I want to be. And you're going to accept it. And if not, that's too bad. I'm not going to play that game. Um, I think about this a lot, just being a black man in 2023 and think about my parents' trajectory and just their lives. Um, and what I do now as a career <laughs> and also how I show up in the world, um, there's always things we can critique about our generation now uh, and movements and stuff always. Uh, and we can also critique previous generations too, but we, we, we're standing on those shoulders in a lot of ways. And it's like, I, and a lot, like, I don't know. You had to wear the tie in a certain and kind of uplift respectability in certain, in certain instances because like in order to like literally survive certain ways where it's like, now we don't have to do that as much. We can really lean into throwing that under the throwing that under the bus and kind of doing what we want more so than you could because you had to survive in we still do, but it's like in a in a more in a different terrain, very different terrain, right? And we have to respect that and honor that and know that. And we can do that and well as critique those movements and their pitfalls and whatever at the same time. And so I think about that a lot just in general, but also with dress, it like shows up in that exact same way. Um and I think it's I think it's fascinating. So I, I appreciate it just digging through all your, your, your all your public work, right, and looking at the directory of like civil rights movement and the nuances there too, as you just mentioned. Then Black Power and then like BLM. You know, it's been what ten the, the decade really uh, for the broader movement for Black Lives, and even how within that that's changed a lot. These things change, we say the same. They build on each other and critique each other all in the same way, and that's all coded in how we're like what we're wearing, which is. I think is like really fascinating. Yeah, I think it's you know what we wear is is a lens to kind of look at history in the same way we could like look at music from an era or art from an era or poetry from an era. We can look at what people were wearing, and it's on it's in some ways a little more democratic than like a film might be, or because everyone can participate mm-hmm. in it in interesting ways, or um, does without them wanting to. Right, like even even if you don't think you are, you might be. Um, you are in some way, so. I think that's interesting and and I think what I one of the things I've I've taken away from this is um like it's really easy to look back on historical movements or moments or or specifically like fashion choices of the time and apply like our current knowledge today to those choices and and we should and we should critique them but also it like the relevance of what they were dealing with at the time and what was considered revolutionary at the time was very different. Totally, than, yeah, girl. Um, yeah. Than, than what we think is revolutionary <laughs> now. Um, because we can definitely have a conversation about, you know, respectability when it comes to what um, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement was wearing. But, you know, at the same time, they were coming right off of, um, you know, very recent laws that were in place to like not allow enslaved people to dress 
in the ways that they were dressing, you know, to quote the law, like, quote, above the condition of slaves. So they're, you know, in their own timeline, in their own, you know, parents' generations, you know, black people were not allowed to dress like above a certain status level. So Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, it was very revolutionary for them to show up in media wearing what they were wearing, Mm -hmm. Um, which is important to note. It's not the only thing to know, but it's, you know, having having the context, I think, is always important. I've seen the Django. No. <laughs> oh yeah, we wore yeah. the fucking the blue shoes. Yeah, when he thing. walks in and people motherfuckers looking at him all crazy, he's like, nah. And so, so you chose to wear that? Because yeah, <laughs> he couldn't. That, yeah, bro, I'm telling you. And the thing I connect with that is like, so uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the charro. The, so the, the the like you know on mariachi right? Yeah, yeah. So you know how they got that like funky like suit on? Uh-huh. That's a that's a play off of the thing called the charro. And originally that was a thing that only Spaniards wore. And so it, it meant that you like rode horses and shit. Mm. And so it wasn't until the Spanish Revolution or Spanish-Mexican Revolution that as an act of defiance, motherfuckers would dress up in their own versions of charros, uh, you know, as, as they, you know, in, in war and et cetera. And so now the charro is primarily used by mariachi. Uh, as a thing, but it's still like it's like a cultural thing then that was taken on by mestizos or like half Spanish, half indigenous human beings um, to take on. So I knew that one. That was in my pocket. See, I didn't oh know that. God. Let's <laughs> go. Go crazy. I love like, it. Fuck Thank you. you. <laughs> yeah, fuck the Spanish. <laughs> um, <laughs> Spanish but, is a colonizer language, right, David? Yo, hey, hey, hey. You know? <laughs> but um, no, nah, man, I think I think it's just... This is so fantastic. We're probably gonna have to do a part three later. <laughs> like, like, I'll keep coming just, back. Just tell me when. Yo, say less. We'll reschedule eight times, yeah. and we'll finally, we'll finally figure yeah. it out. Nah, but nah, and and so I've I've been really appreciating hearing uh, from both of you, and I think you know I think everyone's hitting so many, so many uh, important aspects in, in 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 finding that balance between history, right? The ability or the concept of being able to create one's own fashion doesn't just dawn on you overnight. Right. It has been a curation and accumulation of ideologies and, and things that also you took decisions like I like, don't like. Because I, I totally see the Avril Lavigne. You know, you mentioned <laughs> it earlier on. I see it. It breathes life. And I'm, I'm glad that that's a part of it. Right. You know what I'm saying? And like, so it's not like we have to come out here because, you know, to the point of I feel we can be very harsh on all of our past selves. Totally. You know what I'm saying? To be like, I didn't have fashion. I'm going to have fashion. Well, you know. We can say that about multiple aspects of each of our individual selves, but I do think Hannah, when they were doing, you know, uh, you know, your masters, Hannah did have fashion. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> she was figuring it out in her own way, shape, or form. And so I don't know. I think for all of our listeners, definitely, you know, getting where you fit in as always. But and you know, be patient. It does take time. It takes a lot of learning and unlearning. I wanted to acknowledge a theme. I feel like a few of us have touched Go on, ahead, which is. Right. Um, sort of like fashion's ability to subtly communicate an idea so that you don't have to like walk into a room yelling it, but you can be like wearing a shirt. Yellow ass shirt. (laughs) You can be like, you know, wearing a no cop Academy shirt to a mayoral event and like, see if he says something about it, you know, like you Mm -hmm. can, Mm -hmm. you know, you can like, you don't, I think there's a power in like being able to do that subtly because sometimes you know, it's maybe not safe to like run into a room shouting it. Or the pin game, bro. I think the pin game, 
has like also a lot, you know, like like pins that you put yeah, on yeah, your yeah. backpack or your jacket and shit. Depending on where I'm going and where I'm at, I got like a whole wall of like movement pins now. So like, which one am I gonna talk about today? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Am I feeling like yeah. economic yeah. justice? Yeah. My feeling like yeah, you, you know, know my feeling more feminist. I'm, I'm, day, what I'm gonna start doing is you know how instead of how motherfuckers put lapels and shit, I'm gonna start putting like little ones. I'm thinking about it. Just like one pin. Yeah. But there, that's re- and there's. You know, there's a whole group of people who maybe like can't be physically at a movement, but you can show up in whatever sphere of influence you are in that day and and still show that you support it subtly through at the office. Y'all got nine to fives. I hear you. I see you out there. Right. Like you can (laughs) you can have, you know, some sort of graphic tee on or, you know, in movements of the past, maybe you were like like youth across America were wearing Black Panther like attire. They were Mm -hmm. wearing berets, leather jackets, the gloves, etc. Um, even if they weren't like physically in a city where that movement was happening, like in a were, chapter, paying dues. Yeah, you. It's a way to show solidarity without like you know yelling from a rooftop that you are part of something. But when I think about pop culture and movement and dress and getting to the mainstream moment, I think a lot about NWA. And there's also like a documentary about this too. NWA, you know, they're in the Compton, California. That's where, like, the Raiders were at the time. And so Raiders' colors were, like, white and black. Maybe silver at the time. I'm not sure. But white and black. And so home colors were, were all black, essentially. Some Cholo shit, too. Oh, some Cholo shit. Cho- they, no, we can talk about location of, of the Raiders and blah, blah. Okay. Yeah, give, give it to me. No, no, no. I mean, just like, it, 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 uh, to, in my understanding, the Raiders were had a larger than most fan base of Latinos. Simply mm. because it was California mm-hmm. and oh. also because, like, Hip hop merged in with it, and I would argue like that. That's where you find that definition between the cholo. Uh, if, if you look, David, at what is a cholo? A cholo, it is, it is, it is a um, uh, Latino or often Chicano type of gangster. Um, the cholo represents family to me. Like when when I envision like cholo culture, predominantly West Coast, right? We mm-hmm. we always associate with the Raiders, right? And it's cool that you and connect with NWA that, yeah. as well and shit like that. So. You know. And I wasn't much aware of that, right? They were all yeah. wearing black as kind of that culture as well. And so NWA wearing all black all the time because that's you know part of hip hop, especially especially that is authenticity and being real, and that's a a, a, a piece of hip hop culture, especially then. And so NWA rises to prominence. They kind of are the, the pioneers of this kind of subgenre of hip hop at the time, and they get super popular. And it means something. It means it means. In your face. It means aggressive. It means being real. It means all this shit that, especially in football particularly, uh, is popular. Aggression, violence in a lot of ways. Um, and so you see the NFL start adapting black colored versions of their jerseys on teams that don't have black as their colors, right? And then you see that bleed into other sports that don't have black as their colors. Start wearing that certain special like uh, events or special games and stuff. And it comes to this fire brand of booming merchandise is a direct result of uh, hip hop. If you look at a NFL stadium before the boom of hip hop and look at it afterwards, you'll see the difference. Other sports teams, other companies, other just clothing brand has black like, versions of all their shit because it's cool because it means aggression, because aggression is, is tied to NWA, because they're showing it in your face, and there's that dialectic there as far as all the things about NWA and gangster are emerging out of Reagan's California, and Compton used to being white, and that turning black because of 
uh, disinvestment and anti-blackness and capitalism because of neoliberalism. There may or may not be a paper and documentary about it called What's Beef? So boxpo.com slash what's beef. But this all has to do with politics and, 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 and oppression and systems and pop culture and reclaiming in all its flaws, reclaiming being in your face about it. And it rises to mainstream prominence and it bleeds into all these other industries. And everyone's making money of it because these couple of black dudes from the hood started doing it, putting on a dope beat, and people across the board started enjoying it and consuming it in very like literal ways with their dollar, but also just uh, uh, it became a cultural product in a lot of ways. When I got to the NFL at retail, the business was about $300 million. And when I left uh, seven and a half years later in 1993, it was uh, close to $3 billion. And that's because of the Raiders just being all black. You know what I mean? Um, so I think those kind of pop culture moments, I think, to me, are super fascinating. And again, with football and NFL, for some reason, that's been a topic of discussion. But Beyonce at Super Bowl, February 2016, from Luminatia's formation in, like, pseudo uh, Black Panther gear. And then races are like, ah, boycott the NFL. Ah, boom, boycott I mean, Beyonce. Like she likes black people. Right? Yeah. And it's always like weird racist shit. I'm like, this is y'all boycotting Beyonce? Really? You know who she was before the Super Bowl? And so Beyonce has this thing that, and we can, we can argue about Beyonce and Jay-Z, not, you know, we in the front lines of the movement type shit. Different episode. <laughs> but she does this thing, people. which is like pretty dope. And now she's a, a global Brilliant. sensation, global yeah. superstar. She does this, which is an intentional choice sure. in using imagery and wear from a certain movement that meant a certain thing at a certain black time. liberation at a certain time this is 2016 this is this is trump is not president yeah but he's 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 Things charging that way saucing, like, so i think context and history even this history was a couple of years ago we need to understand as far as why this is why this matters and then a couple of later nfl draft in chicago asada's daughters fly um fearless leading by the youth i think other organizations as well they are protesting Dante Servan, who killed Rakia Boyd, um, who is, you know, has been a police officer for several years after he killed Rakia Boyd. He's still on the force. He's A, not even fired, not charged, for sure, because God forbid. Um, still on the force, not fired. And if he, if, if he is, does it get, you know, gets fired or leaves, he has also pensions. They're protesting that, right? And so they wear the same shit that Beyonce wore at the Super Bowl, giving a nod to Black Power Movement at this protest against state violence against black women specifically. Um, and it's also tied to the underfunding of Chicago State University, which is a you know 80-something percent black, and then uh, students go there. All this shit is tied together as far as movement, liberation, pop culture, sports. Um, and to me, it's just fascinating like linking all those things in a very local way, right, in Chicago where, where we are. and organizations we know and people we know that, are, that were there at that, that uh, stopping of traffic on a very popular street where the police came and tried to make My a fuss way, about yeah. it because it was so <laughs> big and so obvious and salient that they, you know, luckily didn't didn't escalate into violence. I think some folks were arrested in that, in that time, but didn't escalate into, like, Supreme violence. Um, you know, that means something. And, and, you know, we can we can and should critique pop culture all the time for all of its flaws and whatever and how it codes values that uh, that we either don't hold or do and aren't proud of, but you know, this is messy and it's nuance, and these connections aren't just there by happenstance. I think it's important to note. I, I definitely think there's there, there's beauty in, in what you just said, Colin, because I think 
you know, oftentimes, and it's interesting that we started our, our initial conversation was like, what is something that like gravitated you? And most of us name things that are within the pop culture like sphere of mm-hmm. the world. Right. And so it's like we truly understand its power. Right. Because my second answer to that initial question was like like a Bulls jersey, like watching people in like Bulls jerseys because of what Jordan represented in the 90s, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And that connection to the Bulls then to the city. Right. And then the city to like hard, hardworking motherfuckers like, you know, Jordan mentality because then Jordan is synonymous with Bulls. So like, I don't know, that's that's literally where I was thinking when you were talking, Colin, about like things that I now associate. Right. Because I don't associate. The Chicago Bulls. I don't associate with whoever the fuck this owner is. Like, I, I mean, fuck we, all the owners. I mean, it doesn't matter. But like, yeah, that's, that's not who we me. think about, right? <laughs> we think about literally like particularly humans who then they become this idea to us, right, and either motivate us or push us. And so like, there's you know there's a lot of people who like bash Jordan for all the things he didn't do, right? But those of us who look at that as like a light of like, oh, I, I like yeah, I rock like if I rock any, I don't rock teams. I guess as an example, right? Sports is not a thing. But the Bulls, even when I didn't watch the Bulls, I still rock like a Bulls hat, Bulls sweater. You know what I'm saying? Like Bulls sweats or whatever. And it's connected to that ideology of the city and connected to the mentality of like the, 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 what it represents to be a bull. You know what I'm saying? A Chicago Bull type mentality. So that's where I was like wanting to take the conversation in, in the, in the, di- in the world that is pop culture. <laughs> right. Cause that, I think it, it, to, to some of us, like Bay might not be an influence. Right. Right. But but like we love sports, Hannah. Any 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 other thoughts or feels on uh, any nods from pop culture today that you've seen or that you want to shout out or uplift? I mean, y'all are bringing in some great stuff. You're bringing in a lot of sports references and hip hop <laughs> references that I can't really speak yeah. on, but I love hearing about it. And so you got a masters. You. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you. Thank you for bringing it up. I'm I'm, like, I'm thankful. For like I forgot. No, it's kidding. <laughs> Yeah, but what what are some things like, that come yeah, to, sports, to your that's mind? Great. You're really so good. Good. sports I'm balls. So dead. <laughs> <laughs> You're like the Super Bowl this weekend? What? The, <laughs> the Rihanna concert? I'm so like, It is the Rihanna concert for sure. <laughs> nah, go fuck Chiefs. that. Go Chiefs. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not fuck that. Go Rihanna, but also go Chiefs. Go, go Rihanna and Chiefs. <laughs> Hannah, back to you. Any, any, any thoughts or feels in regards to pop culture that you would like to uplift or that you've seen in your work? Um, I mean, I feel like a a general theme, um, that you both have touched on is just Mm -hmm. sort of like we, a need to understand the history or the context in order to like understand the power Mm. of a certain reference. If you don't have a foundational knowledge of the Black Panthers or a visual of, of what their movement symbolized or how they dressed in that movement. You're not going to understand the Beyonce reference to yeah, that. Right. Um, and I'm sure like, oh my God, a lot it looks so of cool. It looks so like, good. Oh, I, love Beyonce. I gotta get me one of them jackets. You know, that's, you right. know, that's probably what we were saying. I mean, oh, <laughs> that's I, I just hate it because you're probably so <laughs> right. on point for sure. <laughs> to me, it's it just speaks to like the the necessity of understanding like the historical context of, of what we're wearing. Mm. Um it's important to be able to understand those references, to be able to understand um, the symbolism there, the con- the, histor- the historical context there, um, and also then how that applies to ourselves. You know, again, kind of bringing it back to what we choose to wear. Yeah. You know, it's easy, like you said, to be the one looking at Beyonce and being like, oh, I need an outfit like that. Like, that looks so cute. 
um, and like not understanding that there is like a lot of really rich black history involved in her choices behind what she's wearing um, and yeah how that can affect like what we choose to wear beyond that um, but yeah I think in general when we've learned about these movements um, you know there's a lot of things wrong with how we learn about things in school settings but part <laughs> of it is um, you know how they looked what people were wearing like is relevant to the conversation in a lot of these um, you know in a lot of these moments that we're learning about and you know there are references to them constantly um, another one that comes to mind is the um, the sort of first wave feminist movement of the 1910s and 20s in the United States um, feminists were wearing all white and we've seen sort of that all white uniform mm. of feminist movements come into play in a lot of settings um, Kamala Harris wore all white on her on, on inauguration day um, and uh, that kind of like plays into like the co-opting of things because mm. like is that Ooh, talk to us is that as feminist as we think it is I don't you know there's a lot to unpack there but um, wait because so for, for for us who may not understand mm -hmm. what is the significance of all white so the the, the suffragette movement of the 1910s and 20s when women were fighting for the right to vote mm -hmm. um, they chose all white because sort of the counter narrative to the suffragist movement was women who wanted the right to vote women who wanted political power were seen as ugly and manly and oh, wow. just it was very much in a like a, a very sexist attack yeah, yeah on like oh what They're would what would women hate the most they would hate being ugly and perceived as masculine so that's how we're going to portray women who want the right to vote so that women who are scared of being perceived as masculine don't want like don't fight for that um and so part of wearing pair. all white was sort of this idea of purity you know we see that in like wedding um in, in in the world of weddings as well like all white sort of being this like virginal pure woman um sort of this ideal you know very like white woman view of like what femininity is hmm. um and so wearing all white sort of comes from this like oh like you know misogynist and sexist in the media are portraying us as masculine and like you know ugly and vulgar and uh, impure so if we were all white like that goes against that narrative which i understand at the time how that might have been revolutionary but like sure. we've Ooh. we've certainly moved way beyond that at this point and and women who are who are like you know kamala harris um and i and i understand like historically referencing that is valuable in some ways but so shout out kamala harris um <laughs> but at the same time the rest. um their reasoning for doing it at that moment like to demand respect because like to show that you are pure and deserving of respect is like no longer where we're at as far as feminine feminist movements go as far as like what we understand to be like the concept of gender what we understand that to be i i don't know i think we see that playing out in a lot of historical movements kind of like what was revolutionary then is interesting and important to reference and analyze but like we don't necessarily need to bring it into today because it we have moved beyond it yeah and i think i think that's very similar to my point I made earlier it's like you right. have to like respect the, oh that like meant something then like i yeah. get it also, who was not involved in those choices then? What was, 
how can we critique these movements, but also build off them as well. And like, this shit's hard and weird and nuanced and like violent in all the ways, even within folks working for liberation. And like, we gotta be able to talk about it and appreciate the advances that we have and privileges we have because of that, but also be like, hey, that's kind of fucked up. And like, yeah, you, you mentioned a lot of that. So I think like with across the board, we have to be able to do that. And look honestly, what we're doing now, and are we are we reifying those things in different ways that are more subtle, right? Sure. Um, that's that's just important. Right? Mm-hmm. So we never we need everyone in these movements for liberation and transformation and revolution. Um, in order to do that, we got to be able to uh to to critique ourselves and previous movements unpack and and it's like you mentioned earlier, it's constant unlearning and learning and then acting on those new those new learnings and unlearnings. Mm-hmm. Um, an instance that I just want to bring up that like recently blew my mind, I'm reading um, <laughs> a book called Dress Codes by Richard Thompson Four. It's a great book about sort of like a history of like of laws and policies that have guided how we dress. Um, and something that I, I just learned from the chapter I'm reading is um, this like in the in the early kind of renaissance sort of at the birth of like individuality and the first kind of inklings of of fashion as we know it to be during renaissance in 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 Europe um women started you know having more options for how to dress and sort of choosing how they dress and that like really scared the church and it really scared men in power um and so what they did was not only enforce laws for what like quote unquote like noble woman or like respectable women of the church had to wear but in order to further ingrain like what was considered you know modest or respectable for nobility to wear they then enforced the opposite onto prostitutes and like sex worker women of the time so like if you were forced to wear something like legally, you know, they might say like, oh, this color skirt or this length of skirt is appropriate for women of nobility. At the same time, they were creating laws that said, if you are a sex worker or prostitute, you can't wear a skirt longer than this. Or like you would be like, you can't wear something that would make you be perceived as anything more than you are class wise. Damn, what was this? This was throughout Europe. There are multiple instances of these of these sort of laws that would restrict sex workers mm-hmm. to what they wanted women to perceive as immoral dress. So like excessive jewelry, like sex workers were forced to wear a certain amount of jewelry. They were f- they were forced to wear certain colors, to wear certain kinds of skirts that nobility were then prohibited from wearing. And that was so that there was a clear visual divide from quote unquote respectable women and, you know, unrespectable women at the time. So, you know, just going back to sort of that original idea of like what we perceive as, you know, judgments on on people's, you know, gender, sexuality, class, etc., is like so manufactured within us like to the point where the church and men in power at this time were like so intimidated by women wearing certain things that it was like no only prostitutes are allowed to wear that um so yeah that was i could get more in depth than that but that's just you know a very general overview of you know what we understand about like when we're looking at women especially what we understand to be like moral quote-unquote or like immoral or modest or not modest has literally been like entrenched in policy and law created by men that's 
That, yeah, that's a, yeah. a whole the, other The codification is what gets me. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I think what, what, like, something that resonates with me is, like, uh, I hear you as it being a tactic used for control, but I think oftentimes folks who are within that don't know that it is being used to control them. Like, for I sure. think of, like, my, like, the cult church or whatever, like, it was mandated that women wear uh, skirts at all times, long skirts, and it had to be, like, below a certain, like, and if you did not, if you wore pants, you were a Gentile, and you were, like, blah, blah. So it's, like, to even to today, like, I, I was hearing, that's why I was, like, where was that? It sounds like it was in Cicero and, you know, 16th. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But uh, I don't know. It's just, it's nuts. It's nuts. And so th- thinking of, like, both sides, because then, then I also think of, like, the Nation of Islam, right, where they're, like, it was, it was within protocol to present in a, in a particular fashion, right, because of what it was tied to, men and women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I th- like, I think that's a whole other conversation. Like, religion sure. and, and fashion, I think, is our Ooh, part cool. three. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I, think, oh. I think what was not surprising to me was, like, oh, of course they, like, enforce certain rules about what women could wear. Like, if you were, you know, you know, nobility or, you know, like, higher income, class, whatever. Um, but I think it was, like, the mind-blowing part for me was, like, oh, they were also, like, telling sex workers what to wear to like further enforce like what was considered immodest or like immoral to wear um and that was really fascinating to me they also you know the whole other level is they also forced jewish women to wear what prostitutes had to wear so we could also get into that um and the and the punishments were you know you could strip a woman nude in the street if she wasn't wearing what was prescribed to her class or her status so you know, there's all sorts of like levels of violence in there, but yeah, I just, it's all manufactured is the moral of that story is it's all, it's all been prescribed to us. Um, and we think of it now as like sort of more subconscious than it ever really was. That, or it's like, oh, these are norms that like, you don't like boo. It's like, no, this was codified in policy. Like really in the grand scheme of things, not that long ago. Right. Um, and like dress codes in schools, we don't really think of as the same as what you're talking about, but like, oh no, are very, very, very similar. Not that different, correct? <sighs> yeah. Despite, you know, the hundreds of years between them. I, I wanted to end with a quote from your site that we have here. Um, dress is not only visually stimulating, but also undoubtedly relatable. We know young people are already constructing their own understandings of identity through dress. Um, at a time when identity formation is crucial for their development. I want to go learning about the power of dresses. Historical movements allow for a wide range of new material to supplement common subjects already covered in educational spaces. It opens up space for discussions about social structures, culture, and self-reflection. And I truly feel that's what we did tonight. Mm. I appreciate you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fantastic. I don't know if we gave you the opportunity last time, but any shout-outs to any of the homies? Um, I'll shout out some books that I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to knowledge. That's what we're hearing. the same thing? Hell yeah. Um, okay, like I said, Dress Codes, Richard Thompson Ford. Um, Tanisha Ford has written some incredible um, books and articles about um, specifically the civil rights movement and dress of the civil rights movement and its connection to politics and also just black women and fashion and s- politics and soul. She has some incredible books um, whose titles I am forgetting, which is terrible, but read that work. 
Um, there's a really incredible podcast called Articles of Interest that dives into a lot of like garments and also the history of garments um, and the context for them, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and the last thing I'll shout out is a documentary called Punk Style. <laughs> Sounds like a thing that exists. Or um, Google Punk Style fam. We'll put in the episode notes. Y'all, y'all, y'all will see it. By, if I apologize to... By a, the director whose name I'm forgetting, but the documentary is really good. Um, it was a crucial source for me when I was looking at sort of like the politics of the initial <coughs> punk movement. Um, and also it kind of speaks to more, broader, more broadly like how style can communicate political beliefs, etc. So those are my, my knowledge shout outs. There's a... a, a di- no... It's a scripted series on the Sex Pistols coming to not coming to power, but being getting really <laughs> popular during the punk rock kind of movement, the age of Margaret Margaret Thatcher, which I feel like again contextually what's happening socially, what's happening politically at the time, whatever, whatever, whatever. As we mentioned in this whole episode, but uh, I, I haven't watched the series. Maybe it's trash. I think it looks good, but it's like these this popular punk rock group from the from the eighties in uh, the UK. They were rallying a lot against social norms and whatever whatever but also the this this the signal person at the premiere of that country was margaret fucking thatcher if you don't know we don't <laughs> like margaret thatcher at the airbnb <laughs> or ronald reagan they were in in in, in cahoots on a ways of conservatism and really uh reshifting society and and unfortunately the globe in a lot of the neoliberal policies that we still are dealing with today and so we think about conservatism and folks pushing back and counterculture and punk counterculture Sex Pistols are a, a, a very good example of that, and pop culture, music, what they're wearing, uh, they very much are encompassing a lot of that. Uh, so mm-hmm. maybe the show's trash. It looks good. I don't know. I haven't watched it, <laughs> but I just I just want to name that as far as like politically and socially what's happening at the time and how we're combating these things that are very real. Punk Attitude by Don Letts is a documentary. It's free on YouTube. You can Dang. watch it. Um, very good. It's it's from a few years ago. It was like much closer to the actual punk movement. It's very good. Um, would recommend. And yeah, it kind of dives into like the social political context of that time, which is really fascinating. Um, and yeah, that's those are my shout outs. Right. Well, thank you, Hannah, so much for joining us. As always, it's been truly fantastic. We may have you back on. I don't know about how soon. Pero le vemos. You know what I'm saying? But really appreciate you sharing. And thank you to all of our listeners. You know, as always. If you don't know our socials, you got to find them by now at Bourbon and Brown Town. Twitter's a little funky. It'll be on the episode notes. We'll find it Episode for you. notes. Go look. And if you're first time listening or second time listening, listen to Hannah's episode part one, part two. Um, subscribe to Bourbon and Brown Town. Like, why not? Hey. You know, who knows? Why not? And also, I'm like thinking back. I get really self-conscious <laughs> in these episodes, especially we haven't recorded in a long time. Like, fuck, what did I say? Um, we are consuming alcohol throughout the conversation <laughs> i am like two just neat 120 proof knob creek bourbons deep i'm sorry if i'm mumbling through stuff it's probably gonna happen again he needs to apologize but i just need you to himself. know that like yeah. we're 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 sticking to the craft um this is bourbon bourbon in brown town. and just i've been thinking about this a lot more lately too it's like we don't make our guests drink and like drinking is a normalized thing in our culture or whatever whatever but dave and i drink so like fuck it we're like we're named bourbon brown town so I want to name that just to you just put it out there for your first time listener, but please listen to our shit. We do good, cool things. Subscribe to Soapbox, Soapbox PO on all the things. Um, 
This is going to be big for us. I'm excited. Yeah. We're excited. Yeah. 23 is going to 20, 2023 is going to be big. So make sure you're in tune. And as always, from Bourbon and Brown Town, stay black, stay brown, stay queer. Stay tuned, stay turnt. And we'll see you next time. Bourbon and Brown Town is engineered by Kira Battis. For more credits, information on episode guests, related medium, and topics, check out the episode notes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bourbon Brown Town, Twitter, Bourbon Brown Town, no O's in Brown Town, or visit soapboxpo.com slash podcast. For any and all things Soapbox Productions and Organizing, follow us at SoapboxPO on all social media and visit soapboxpo.com.